Well, good morning. I'm glad you're here today, whether you came by car or by ark. I'm glad you made it in. And to everybody watching online, today I want to talk on the topic of how to take the Lord's Supper. How to take the Lord's Supper. And the reason I'm giving you the topic at the very beginning is this. If you're watching this online, you can press pause and go and prepare, get a uh, a little bit of bread, a little bit of juice, and be ready to partake of the Lord's table. If you didn't see on the way in, there's some deacons that are standing by the table, and you have several choices. You can uh, quietly get up and go and get the elements you need if you missed it on the way in, or you can just slip your hand up in the air, and the deacons will be glad to bring you on at this point or at any point during the service. Just give a little signal. We're talking today about how to take the Lord's Supper. Here's why this is super important. The, the Jesus gave two ordinances to his followers. Ordinance is a fancy word that means order, command. One is the Lord's Supper. The other is baptism, right? And think about how much teaching I've done on baptism. I mean, we saw one today. Like every time we do a baptism, we do a little teaching about what baptism is and why we do baptism. There's all sorts of books on my shelf about baptism. But I was trying to think, have I done a have I done a sermon on the Lord's Supper? Well, I mean, have you heard an entire sermon devoted to the Lord's Supper? But if you think about it, it should probably be the other way around. We should probably be doing a lot of teaching about the Lord's Supper uh, for, I mean, for several reasons. One, the most obvious, baptism happens early on in your Christian faith. You only get baptized once or sometimes more than once if you were, say, christened as a child and then you do believer's baptism and we rejoice in that and that, that, that's great. But you see my point. The Lord's, compare that with the Lord's Supper. Guys, you're gonna take the Lord's Supper if you've been walking with the Lord for 50 years. If you take the Lord's Supper quarterly, that's like 200 times in your life you're gonna get to partake of the, of the Lord's Supper. Um, something you do over and over. So we, if you are a brand new Christian, you're going to be blessed today to hear about the Lord's Supper, to get a good foundation so you know exactly what's going on. If you're one of those that have been taking it 200, you may, you may be like, yo, I passed the 200 mark like a long time ago. Uh, you're going to be blessed and inf I hope infused with new meaning and fresh encouragement. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, that means you're here, like you're, you're checking it out, you're listening, maybe you're skeptical, but you're not, you're not quite yet a believer in Jesus Christ. I mean, you came today on Palm Sunday with all this rain and everything? Good for you. I'm glad you're here. You're obviously not going to be taking the Lord's Supper today. And by the way, nobody's going to judge you if when we take the bread and the cup, you're not. Nobody's going to be like, oh, why aren't they? No, 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 no. That's not how it works. They understand you're here. You're checking things out. You're learning. It's a great Sunday for you to be here because if and when you do become a follower of Jesus, you're going to be ahead of the game. You're going to have good, solid teaching on this really important thing that Christians do because our Lord Jesus told us to do it. So there, there, there is a, very, a great value in teaching on the Lord's Supper. Not to mention, it's like the only ordinance I could find that comes with like a warning sticker. Uh, do you remember in 1 Corinthians 11, do you remember when Paul, in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, and 12, he's basically upset with the Corinthian church. They had made a mess of the Lord's Supper, completely just trashed it, totally irreverent, and made people feel terrible, and was destroying it. He tells them, the, the, you're making a mockery of the Lord's Supper, you trashing the Lord's Supper is the exact reason some of you Christians are sick. 
It literally has caused sickness. And, as if all that's not enough, it's the reason some of you Christians have died prematurely. Oh yeah, you were supposed to live longer. You died early because of the way you're taking the Lord's Supper. I can't think of anything else with that level of warning attached that we'd be like, eh, figure it out, you know? We'd never be that cavalier about anything. What, you're six? Here's my car. Learn on the way. Like, nobody does that, right? Why? Because there's great warning attached. In the Lord's Supper, there's great reverence attached. We've got to get this right. But it's not just the warning. It's, oh, it's not just the warning, y'all. My dream for this morning, and I, I think we experienced it. I think I did. But my dream for this service, I think we experienced it in the early service. My prayer for this service, same thing. It's not just about the warning. Guys, I want, when you take the, the Lord's Supper today, I want you to get as much of the presence of Jesus as you, can, as you can handle. I want you to be so drawn into the presence of your Lord. I want you to sense him. Revelation chapter 3, 20, we often use as an evangelistic text where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. But that verse isn't an evangelist. It was said to the churches. It was said to Christians. He's saying, hey, if you'll open up your heart today, I want to come in and what? Sup with you. I want to eat with you. I want to, I want to fellowship with you. He wants to... He wants to presently be with us today. In a, uh, so there, uh, let me explain it this way. Th- that's what's out there. That's the promise. There was a, uh, a Scottish minister in the 1500s, like 1588, Robert Bruce. And uh, listen to his quote. Because every week you come to worship to get the presence of God, right? The presence of God is active in the preaching of the word. And that's why uh, Protestants are so big on word and table. Some traditions call it word and sacrament, text and table, right? The two parts of worship. You you get that presence of God every time. The Spirit anoints God's word as it goes forth. Yes, you're supposed to be in the presence of God. But what's different about when we take the Lord's Supper? Robert Bruce said it this way. And I won't won't do the Scottish accent like I do when I, you know, quote this with my kids. But, Not that I quote uh, 16th century Scottish people to my kids. Here's the point. He said, um, you do not get a different Christ in the Lord's Supper than you do in the preaching of the word. Follow me. You don't get a different Christ, he says. You don't get a better Christ when you take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is tangible, right? You, You touch it. You taste it. So you don't get a better Christ in the Lord's Supper than you do in the preaching of the word. You don't get a better Christ, he says, but you may get the same Christ better. You may, there, there's something about when we come and the bread and the cup, we, we, it's the same, there's only one Christ. We get the same Christ, but we get him better. There we go, the Lord's table. That's what I want for you this morning. I want you to experience Jesus in a new way. I want the presence of God to fill us this morning in this service. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 22. And uh, Brother Philip, uh, it occurs to me, all this talk about the Lord's table, I didn't get, w- would you serve me an element, bro? <laughs> you guys all make sure you have that. I don't, but you need it. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. Um, so, thank you, brother. Thank you. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22, and I, can, I think we can clear up two quick things as you're turning to Luke chapter 22 in your device or on your Bible. Uh, clear up uh, two, two quick things. One is, what should you call it? And the other is, how often should you take it? What should you call it? I call it Lord's Supper, but if you call it communion or Eucharist, um, it doesn't matter. 
good. And uh, I mean, they all mean the same thing. Uh, Eucharist is from the Greek word, if you're curious, that means give thanks. It comes from Luke 22. When he took the cup, he gave thanks. So eucharizo. So Eucharist, if you call it communion, communion means fellowship and participation. So we participate in this supper together. You know, if you really want to be avant-garde, call it the breaking of the bread or the Lord's table or love feast. It's the same thing. The other thing is how often should we take it? Uh, The answer is often. Uh, The Bible doesn't say. So there are some faith communities that, these are godly, Bible-believing Christians who take the Lord's Supper every single day. Others take it weekly. And I've preached in churches where every single week there was the table. So every time the sermon would end, it would lead it right into the table. That's fine. Uh, Some churches take it monthly. Here at Coleman First Baptist, we do it quarterly. There are some churches that do it uh, annually, believe it or not, once a year. That's all they take it. And they, they take a week and prepare. And it's, um, There's pros and cons to both. I think that uh, if you do it too infrequently, I think, I think once a year is a little too infrequent. Because then you're, you're sort of like, I don't know, you're being robbed of this great gift that, you know, is for the church. But if you do it too often, sometimes, have you ever heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt? And so you run the risk sometimes, if you do it all the time, that it becomes sort of pedestrian, you don't think about it. But it's certainly nothing in the Bible that prevents you every day or every week or uh, once a year. I think once a month or once a quarter is about right, and, but I, I certainly wouldn't fight you if you, if you saw that differently. That, that, that's fine. Uh, Christians can disagree on that, no problem. So here we go. Here's what is Christians agree on. Here's the basis for the Lord's table. I'm going to give you four points. Note takers rejoice. And I'll give you the points up front, and then we'll also have them on the screen here. It's going to be, know your roots, behold your land, search your heart, await your future. Know your roots, behold your land, search your heart, await your future. Let's get right to the first one, know your roots. The Lord's Supper didn't spring out of nowhere. We learn from all four gospel retellings that it came from this Jewish feast called the Passover meal. And uh, uh, we, we love it when people don't, uh, they, they don't forget where they came from. They don't forget their roots, you know. It's, it's a beautiful thing when people are humble. I've heard stories about the country music group Alabama. Maybe this is some of you have experienced this. But apparently when uh, this country music group made it really, really famous, um, they would sell out, sold, they would sing at sold out arenas and the next day be coaching their kids Little League game in Fort Payne or wherever and people would just talk to them or whatever. And people love that so much because it was like they didn't forget their roots, you know. Uh, it's, it's, it's sad when people get arrogant and they forget their roots. Um, it can happen, according to Romans 11, it can happen in religions. And Paul tells Gentiles, if you are not ethnically Jewish, see, if you're Jewish, you've been taking the Passover every single year. You've been celebrating Passover. If you're not ethnically Jewish, you're a Gentile, you might think that this whole Lord's Supper thing started out of nowhere. No, no, no. No. God, if, if you're a follower of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, that means you're like a, a Gentile, a wild olive branch, and you've been grafted in to this Israel tree. And God still has a plan for Israel. So don't, don't be getting arrogant, you know. Instead, just realize, as a Gentile, I am a follower of the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. And that's God's plan. He wants Jew and Gentile, those ethnicities, to fade away so that we become a people of God from both Jewish and Gentile uh, ethnicities. It's beautiful, but it comes from that. And I want us to look uh, for a while at the Passover roots of the Lord's table. So that's what Jesus, when Jesus, on Palm Sunday, when he enters the triumphal entry, that's why he comes in and the Hosanna and all that. 
Jerusalem is exploding this week because it's Passover week in Jerusalem in 30 AD or whenever Jesus walks in. So that's what he wants the disciples to prepare. Look at verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. Now, understatement, Passover in Judaism is a big deal. In fact, if you have friends that are Jewish, last night was probably their, their big night. They, 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 they celebrated a, a Passover Seder. That's the meal that's also a ceremony. And uh, many of them will do it a second night. They'll also do it tonight. That then kicks off a seven-day festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This all comes straight out of the Old Testament. So Passover and unleavened bread, the reason they're mentioned together, Passover is technically a one-day holiday, and unleavened bread is seven days, but it always happens concurrently. Passover kicks off unleavened bread. Unleavened because, hey, if you remember the Exodus, when we're the chosen people are getting up out of Egypt, going to happen in a hurry. Don't even wait for the yeast to rise in your dough. Let's just grab what you got and go. Leaven also represents sin. We're cleaning out the sin in the spring. It's a great reminder for this week. Look what God did for us. Passover first, and it happens every year on the same day on the Jewish calendar. It's different days on our calendar. It always happens on the 14th of Nisan. Not, not Toyota, like N-I-S-A-N, the 14th of Nisan. And then the 15th through the 21st is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Well, that's what everybody is in Jerusalem for. That's what Jesus is for. And what's the point of these, these, these feasts? The point is very simple. Remember. Remember. So this is what the disciples would have been celebrating. This is what they're all expecting. That remember what? Remember that we, the Jewish people, were slaves in Egypt, slaves under Pharaoh. So God raises up a deliverer, Moses, and tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh refuses. So God sends nine plagues, and they get more and more intense. And Pharaoh hardens his heart each time. No, and refuses to let the children of Israel go. And so God comes to Moses and says, okay, this tenth plague, get ready. This is the one that's going to do it. After this one, I assure you, he's not only going to let you go, he's going to insist that you go. For the 10th plague, God's going to do something incredible. Get ready. You're going you're to celebrate this, and then you're going to be out of here. So leave your bread unleavened. He says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send the 10th plague, and the 10th plague is the firstborn in every household is going to die. It's going to be a plague of judgment. There's going to be a death in every household. And rank won't save you. Money won't save you. Who you know won't save you. The firstborn of Pharaoh is going to die. The firstborn of the lowliest servant girl is going to die. The, even the cattle, there's going to be a death in every household. He doesn't say the good people are going to get spared and the bad people are going to die. There's no differentiation. It's not, well, these people are Egyptians, these people are Israelites. There will be a death in every household. So, here's what we're going to do. There will be a death in every household, but in the 12th chapter of Exodus, he gives these instructions. He says four days before, on the 10th of Nisan, go and pick out a lamb. It must be an unblemished lamb, and go and get that lamb and bring it into your household. Decide one lamb for every one household, a one-to-one -one correlation. And then examine that lamb over the next four days. Make sure that it's unblemished. Watch how it interacts. Make sure, and of course the children, when you bring a pet into your house... What's going to happen? That's not a sacrificial lamb anymore. That becomes a pet. 
right? And the children probably give it a name, and they love this fluffy little unblemished lamb, right? They get to know the lamb over those four days. And then on the, the, the night of that fourth and final day, you're going to take the lamb and brutally slaughter it. You're going to slit the lamb's throat. There'll be a pool that'll fill with blood. You're going to roast the lamb and eat it whole. But here's what happens to the blood. It's very important. You're going to take a branch of hyssop, which would have been like a, a, a shrub that would have acted like, sort of like a paintbrush. Dip the hyssop in the blood, and here's what you do. You put the blood on the doorposts. Everybody watch my hand motions. The doorpost and the lentil. Doorpost, lentil. I mean, it's hard as a New Testament Christian not to look back and imagine an ancient Israelite thinking, huh, the blood of this lamb is what will stay the wrath of God as they're making this motion. How can we not? At any rate. Uh, then, what will happen is this. Around midnight, God will come through the land and there will be judgment poured out. Pharaoh has hardened his heart and therefore there will be judgment poured out and the firstborn in every house will die. No exceptions. Every house. Not, not, not well, the good people, the bad people. The, no, no, no. Every house. But, when I reach a house where the blood of the lamb is on the doorpost and the lentil, I will pass over that house. Why? Because I'm playing favorites? Why? No, because there's already been a death in that house. There's a death in every house, and God is just. He's not going to require double payment. No, 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 there's already been payment. Some, a lamb has died. Watch this. The lamb died in place of the firstborn. The lamb died as a substitute, and therefore I will pass over that house when judgment comes. So you see the theology here. It means blood alone atones for sin. That goes to the heart of the law, Leviticus chapter 17. When you slaughter that animal, it's very clear. That animal died. Blood atones for sin, Leviticus 17. It also means, however, there can be a substitute. That there can be this substitute offering. The lamb died in place of the people. And the third thing it shows us is that the blood of the lamb must be applied. You're not going to meet an ancient Israelite there on that dreadful night who's like, Dude, what are you doing? Didn't you slaughter the lamb? Yep. Why? Because I believe Yahweh. I believe every word he says. Okay. But I noticed you didn't, you didn't take the blood and apply it. Nah. You'd say, bro, do you say you believe, but you don't really believe. You're not taking God serious. If you said you'd believe, you would do what? You'd apply it. Faith and works. Your works are just your faith gone public. Don't say you believe. You would do it, right? That is an act of faith, applying the blood, the act of faith. Blood atones for sin. There can be a blood substitute. You must apply that blood. Well, the night came, and according to history and scripture, God did exactly what he said. The people of Israel set free from Egypt, and they're off to the promised land. God's judgment, God's salvation. And every single year, on the 14th, the 15th of Nisan, kicks it off. You're going to have this Passover meal. God is saying to his children, I mean, when you go to Assyria, when you go to Babylon, it doesn't matter. Passover, every year, Passover. When you come back, when I get you back in the promised land, Passover. Why? Because I know it's easy to get distracted. I know, I know, it's easy. There's a million things going on. So at least one week of the year, when you've swept all the leaven out of your house and you're eating matzah bread, you know, matzah, that unleavened, crispy, flat bread, looks like a big square cracker. It's been pierced and it's got stripes on it. And every year when you're eating all that matzah, that unleavened bread, and you're having this Passover meal, at least once every spring, you can just dedicate that and say, we remember, God, you delivered. So, in some form or fashion, Jews all around the world will celebrate this Passover meal. There is a particular order. 
It's called a Seder. Seder is the word for order, so the order. You even get a little guide, a little bulletin to lead you through it. That's called the Haggadah. And you can follow it through, and that gives you the instructions on how to, if, you're, if you've, perhaps you've been a part of a Passover Seder, that's what's going on. That's the meal that Jesus was going to prepare. That's what he was going to have that Thursday night of Holy Week. It's, a Passover meal is a long, lavish thing. It is a meal, but it's also like a ceremony. And so the idea is not to rush through this, but to savor it for hours. It requires all this symbolism, so there's all this advanced preparation. You have to find certain kind of herbs and, you know, the shank bone of a lamb and uh, all this. And so it takes preparation. That's why Jesus sends Peter and John ahead to prepare it. Well, they naturally ask in verse 9, uh, well, they said to him, where will you have us prepare it? <laughs> I mean, Jerusalem is booked. Uh, I mean, did you like, you got some Airbnb, like, lined out for us or something? How are we possibly going to get a room? Jerusalem slammed. Everybody's celebrating the Passover. And he said to them, verse 10, he said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, quote, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. This is like straight out of a spy movie. Isn't it? Like all this cloaking dagger stuff. Like go into the city. There you'll see a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him into his house. He'll be cool with it. Like what on earth? Um, it is cloak and dagger. What it shows is that Jesus had prearranged all this stuff. Now think about this. Why would, why would this have been a sign? Um, you'll see a man carrying a jar of water. Why would that have been instantly obvious? We think you'll see a man carrying a jar of water. What if I picked the wrong man? It would have been obvious. Why? Because carrying the jar of water was women's work. That's right. It was the women who would be carrying that around. So if you saw a man carrying the water, it'd be like, yo, that must be him. That's it. Follow him into his house? Yeah, it's totally prepared. Why? Here's why. Because what happened just before this passage? Judas had just made his treacherous deal to betray Jesus. Remember, Judas, so the chief priests and Pharisees want to kill him. They got a real problem. They need to take him down when it's private, when he's alone. The problem is if he's alone, nobody knows where he is. He like sneaks off to, they're saying maybe Bethany, maybe we've narrowed it down to a few favorite places. We can never find him. So just arrest him in public. Well, then you got a bigger problem. You can't arrest him in public because the crowds love him. So how are we going to take Jesus down? we got to get him when he's alone, but we don't know where he is. And if we know where he is, we can't get him because he's not alone. we got a real problem. Unless, unless one of his own agrees to sell him out. And Judas agreed to sell him out. And Judas would have taken the first opportunity. He got the money. And can you imagine? What better time than the Passover? They're literally in this upper room all by themselves. It's just Jesus and the disciples. Chief priests come in. They take him. It's perfect. But Jesus had a lot to do that night. Jesus had a full agenda. I mean, look at all the red letters from John like 14, 15, 16, and 17. He had a lot to talk about. He had a lot to do. So, so, so what does he do? He knows what's in the heart of Judas. He knows what's about to happen. So he says this, Peter and John, you two go on ahead. Judas stays with me. So now Judas doesn't even know the name of the location. Nobody knows the name of the location. Just Mr. Jarwater on his head guy. Right? Who's going to be in heaven one day? And be like, yeah, it was a great moment. I'm not named. but Right? He's the only one who knows. Judas doesn't know. Why? What is my point with all this? I need you to see that the whole thing was 
orchestrated by King Jesus. He wasn't the victim of the treachery of the evil one. He was the king to the very last. He was going to die on his father's terms, not on the terms of the evil one. Does that make sense? He's got the whole thing mapped out, whole thing lined out. Well, it worked because it's Jesus. It always works. <laughs> and they went, verse 13, and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. Now, as I said, this would have been a lot of preparation. As I said earlier, they follow the Seder. The Passover is this long, lavish thing. It's a meal, but it's also a ceremony. Now, I can kind of summarize the order for you. There are some ceremonial things that happen before the actual meal, then the eating of the actual meal, then some ceremonial things that happen after the eating of the meal. And it really centers around uh, uh, three things. Um, one is the unleavened bread. And again, it'd be helpful if you could imagine matzah. If not, just go home and Google it or maybe look for some in the grocery store and try some. It's like a, like a cracker, un, unleavened bread, and it's pierced, and it's got these stripes. And the, so, so the matzah figures predominantly in this ceremony. The other is four, count them, four cups of wine. So this is spread out over this big, long event, and there's these four cups of wine that are very, very important. And obviously, bef before the destruction of the temple, the lamb. I mean, that, that, that's the meal, part of the meal. Nowadays, uh, Jews don't eat the lamb because uh, the, 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 the temple, without a temple, there's no proper uh, sacrifice. And so they do, you know, uh, delicious foods and perennial favorites, matzo ball soup and all these, all these uh, delicious things. If you've ever been to one, it's wonderful, but not a lamb. In, in, there's no record of the lamb in, in our story in Luke or in Matthew Mark. Presumably, most theologians believe because of what he's doing with the Passover, the lamb is not the lamb is obviously not on the table because, like, the lamb is at the table. Amen? Like, I mean, it's, it's Jesus, the Passover lamb. We'll, we'll get ahead of ourselves. We're getting there. But at any rate, you got the matzo bread. you got the four cups of wine. So when evening comes, you light the candles. That's what starts it, right? So it's got to be evening. You light the candles. That starts it. And there's the four cups of wine. First is the first cup. That's the kadush, the cup of blessing. So the host holds it up, and he pronounces this blessing. Then, after the first cup, there's the ceremonial washing of hands. It's ceremonial. They don't actually wash their hands. They just send around a bowl, and you dip your hands in it, which is probably less hygienic than if they had just not done it. But at any rate, um, it's usually a little child that takes it around. Usually, you pick the youngest kid, and the youngest kid gets to walk around with the bowl, and you do the ceremonial washing of hands. Um, I, I don't know. But I wonder if, um, remember, it's just the disciples and Jesus. So there's no, there's no children. There's no sort of extras here. Um, I wonder if, because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell it a little different. They sort of compress the story for, for various reasons, theological and chronological. But you've got to wonder if that's the point when they look around like, who's going who's gonna to be the little kid who takes around the bowl to let everybody wash hands? I ain't doing it. And James is looking at John, and John's looking at James like, you not it, right? What about you, Thomas? Thomas like, I doubt it. <laughs> and you know, right, Andrew. I ain't doing it. Hey, yo, yo, yo. I don't sit at the kid's table, right? I wonder if, if that's the moment where in uh, uh, the Gospels tell us they were arguing amongst themselves about who is the greatest. I wonder if that's the moment where Jesus got up and he took a towel. It was girded around his waist. And he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel around his waist. 
And he looked at him like, you know, you guys are acting like the Gentile pagans. When they get the littlest bit of power and authority, they become jerks. You ever notice that? They lord it over everybody. But that's not how we do things. So the greatest among you must be your servant. So you see what I'm doing as an example. Now go live a life of servanthood to others. It makes sense, right? They would have been reclining. You see the intimacy of this moment. For everything Leonardo da Vinci gave us, I mean, he's this is a master, a genius. But like our visual representation of the Lord's table is like wrong. I mean, they're all at a table, first of all, which they wouldn't have been. It would have been a low table, reclining. Secondly, like they're all like posing on one side of the table. Like, say, cheese. How long do we have to hold this? 1,600 years before this thing gets painted. We're going to be here a while. Later, it'll come out in black velvet. There'll be variations. It's cool. <laughs> oh, right? They're sitting around intimately, right? So Jesus could be that there at that point, he washes the feet. We don't know. Then there's the eating of the bitter herbs to remind them of the bitterness of slavery. They dip it in salt water to remind the salt water, remind them of the tears that they, their ancestors cried. They, they make, one of my favorites is the, the, the haraset. It's a, a, like a, like a little paste. It's made with apples. It's sweet. It's good. But you take two pieces of matzah and you put the haraset in the middle because it's to remind them of mortar because they had to make bricks for their Egyptian overlords and so the, the, while they were slaves in Egypt. So it reminds them of the bitterness. Then they take a piece of matzah. This is interesting. There's three uh, uh, pieces of the matzah bread. They take the middle one and they break it in half. The middle one gets broken in half. They put half back in that stack of three. It's very important. It goes back in the middle. The other half gets wrapped in white linen and hidden somewhere in the house. That's called the afikomen. And after dinner, the kids will all look for it, and whoever gets it, you know, gets a little prize. And then that's the piece that's broken after supper. That's the piece the host will take that and break it off and give it to each person who's at the meal. Then comes that second uh, cup of wine, the cup of judgment. That one is... Um, Oh, it's visceral. I mean, think about it. The plagues, and it represents the judgment. And so you reduce it by, you take your pinky finger and you dip it in the second cup, and every time the, everybody there uh, says the name of a plague altogether in unison. It's crazy. I've been to these things. I've seen it. It's 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 powerful moment. And, you know, he sent, you know, uh, blood, boils, frogs, flies, locusts, right? And you go through all death of the firstborn, and it leaves a little drop of the cup right there in 10 drops, each representing a plague, cup of judgment. Oh, we don't have any record in Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John of that second cup of the, um, in, in, of the uh, cup of judgment, but there it is. Then supper is served, and as I said, this is, this is not a meal to be rushed through. This is to be lingered over and savored, and you tell stories, and you're, you, you know, this is where I think Jesus probably did a lot of that teaching. And okay, after supper, the afikomen is found. Like I said, it's, it's broken and a piece given to everyone. Then comes the third cup, the cup after supper, the after supper cup. That's the cup of redemption. The four cups, by the way, are from Exodus 6, 6, where God says four I wills. I will take, I will uh, judge, I will deliver, I will free. You know, so I, I think I got them all. But th there's the four cups. And this third cup, the after supper cup, is the cup of redemption. And the point is, look, freedom is not free. Remember the price that was paid. A lamb had to be slain for you to get your freedom. And then there's a few more ceremonial things, uh, but then the fourth and final cup is the cup of praise. And they sing a hymn, uh, the, the Hillel. This would have been um, Psalm 114 to 118 is sung. Remember, the Psalms were their hymnal. So they sing uh, uh, hymn number 118, Psalm number 118. That's they sing the hymn and they leave. That's why Matthew and Mark say, and after they had... 
sung the hymn, then they went out. And the fourth cup is usually taken there during the singing of the hymn. Everybody got it? So, uh, oh, one more thing. At every Seder I've ever been to, there's always this anticipatory note where they end with like this toast. Next year in Jerusalem. The idea is one day we're going to get back. I mean, this is great and all, but there's, there's got to be something more that's coming. Jeremiah 31 is this prophecy that like one day God will, will write a new covenant. He'll give us a new covenant and write his law on our hearts and all this. So all this is anticipatory. Okay, that's it. That is the Jewish roots of the Lord's Supper. There you have it. That leads to the second step for us on how to take the Lord's table. Don't worry, the first was by far the longest. Everybody take a deep breath. Uh, and that's this. I, I call it know your roots and now behold your lamb. Behold your lamb. What Jesus does when it's his turn, at his last supper, he transforms the Passover into the Lord's Supper. He takes it from Old Covenant Passover and here we're about to see institutes New Covenant Lord's Table. Don't miss how radical this is. Don't miss how unthinkable this is. Listen, listen. If you, last night, if you went into a, a Jewish Seder feast and you, um, you uh, started pointing out, hey, I know you guys have always heard that this represents that. Actually, it represents something else. And I know you've always heard that this little thing you're doing here, this ceremony represents, and no, 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 here, it represents something else. You would be shown the door very quickly. Why? Because they'd say, excuse me, we didn't make this up. We didn't pull this out of nowhere. No, 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 no. You, Moses gave us this. Are you greater than Moses? God gave it to Moses. You think you're equal to God? This is our covenant with God. Are you instituting a new covenant? And right here in this Lord's Supper, Jesus says, uh, I am greater than Moses. I am equal to God. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm instituting a new covenant. So he takes these symbols and reimagines them for his disciples. Watch, the parallels are striking. He says in verse 15, and he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Oh, do you hear the emotion packed into this verse? Jesus knows it's his last meal. He's gonna die tomorrow, he's gonna suffer, he's gonna be the Passover lamb to redeem the people. And I mean, think about that for a second. Who would you want at your last supper if you knew this was it. And you knew that the next day you were going to suffer and die. This was it. You see that, oh, I've desired with a great desire. I've been longing for this. I want to be with you. It, it's a great moment. I think if you're like me, you wouldn't, you wouldn't want that last supper with just anybody. You wouldn't want your last supper to be the Jack's drive-thru with your Uber driver. <laughs> I want to spend it with him. Who, do, who would you, are you like me? Who would you pick? You'd pick your family. You'd want just your family there. And why? You'd want to you'd tell them everything they need to know. Guys, you've got to carry on the faith. You've got to serve each other. Here, listen, I've got so much to teach you in such a short amount of time. I've earnestly desired. The emotions almost make you, choke you up. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He says, look, you're going to do this, but then there's going to come a day where it will be fulfilled. Okay. Remember the first cup of wine? Look at verse 17. Remember the first cup? Does anybody remember what it was called? Good, the Kadush. Yeah, very good. <laughs> uh, the cup of blessing. And that's what he does. The, the blessing, the giving of thanks. He holds it up. And he took a cup, verse 17, and then he gave the traditional thanks. He would give him thanks. He said, 
Take this and divide it among yourselves. That's something odd. Look at verse 18. I tell you from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Interesting. In other words, the Passover is all about looking back. Jesus now, multiple times, has said, you guys need to look forward to something coming. Okay. Remember the three pieces of matzah? You take the middle one and it's broken and hidden. Well, I think this is after supper. I think this is the afikomen, verse 19. He took bread. There's no mention of the... Um, Second cup, uh, the cup of the plagues. That, that, it's not mentioned here. Verse 19, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, it's also there's a blessing over the Afikoman, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is the bread of our father's affliction. That's what, no, 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 no that's not what he says. That's, I mean, that's the script. That's what you're supposed to say. The, 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 you know, the stripes on the matzah remind that, you know, the Egyptian masters would beat them and, he says, no, no, no. He says something totally different. He took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to him, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of what God did at Exodus in Egypt. No, it's not what he says. Do this in remembrance of me. Y'all, do you realize what he's doing? He's saying, this bread that your whole life, you've, you've said that looks back to what God did in in getting the children of Egypt out of bondage to Pharaoh, now I want you to, every time you do this, look back to me. Because what God did in the Exodus was get the children of Egypt out of slavery to Pharaoh. I'm going to take you out of slavery to sin and darkness and Satan. He can deliver you. I mean, God delivered the children of Israel from, from got their political freedom. I'm going to give you your forever freedom. I am the one to whom Passover points. It's my body. Isaiah 53 said that suffering servant, he was pierced for our transgressions. The stripes that we deserve were laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. So he says, just like take, he took the body, he blessed the body, he blessed, took the bread, blessed the bread, broke it, and gave it out. That's the gospel. That's what Jesus did. Jesus, who was equal with God the Father, took a body, and he blessed that body. He showed us what a body truly united to God would look like, blessed. And then that body was broken for us in our salvation and given for you. Jesus has now fulfilled the Passover and is now instituting the Lord's table. And then verse 20, likewise the cup after they had eaten saying. That's why I think that breaking of the bread is also after the supper because likewise the cup. In other words, in the same manner, the cup after they had eaten saying. Remember the third cup? This is the cup of redemption, the, the, the after supper cup. This is the cup that is poured out for you. That is the what? The cup of redemption for what God did in Egypt. No, he says something incredible. He says, no, poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. All these years, every Passover, they had remembered the blood represents the blood of the lamb. The lamb died, and therefore the people were spared. The lamb was a substitute. He says, now, this is the new covenant in my blood. It wasn't some fluffy, woolly little quadruped that took away the sins of the world. It was the sinless, spotless Son of God, Jesus. So this new covenant, he says, it's, it's me. I'm the sacrifice that all these other sacrifices point. Every time God makes a covenant, he gives a sign. He made a covenant with Noah, rainbow. Made a covenant with Abraham, circumcision. He makes a covenant with David, the throne. He makes a covenant with his people, the bread and the cup. It's like a, a wedding ring. It's a symbol of the covenant. Behold your lamb. 
you know, these last two we can do super quick, but I don't want to miss this new covenant in my blood. Can I just say one more thing about this? Um, what day did I tell you that uh, the lamb was brought in to be examined? That's exactly right, the 10th of Nisan. Then he's examined for four days. The, the lamb is examined to make sure it's unblemished. The little children fall in love with the lamb and name the lamb, and then that lamb is killed. Isn't it a striking parallel that the triumphal entry happens right around the 10th of Nisan? And there the lamb of God enters, and what happens? He's examined, isn't he? The scribes and Pharisees ask a bunch of questions. And what do they come to, what, do they, what does Pilate say at the end of all that examination? I find no fault in him. He's unblemished. And the little children fell in love with him, didn't they? They got to know him. They received him. They, they loved him. And then, at just the moment, at just on twilight, when the thousands upon thousands of lambs were being slaughtered, at the exact moment when all those examined, unblemished lambs were being slaughtered, at, while that was happening, the Lamb of God on that Good Friday was dying for us and our salvation. Oh, behold your Lamb. And that leads to, and I can do this quickly, search your heart. Search your heart. What do I mean by that? Examine yourself. Why do I say that? Because in light of all this beauty, in light of all this parallel, in, in light of all this depth and rich history of the Passover, don't miss the obvious. There was one at the table with them who took the bread and took the cup and in his heart couldn't wait to go out and betray Jesus. It was Judas right there. John was leaning up against one side. Most people think Judas would have had to been leaning up right up against the next side because, you know, when they dip the sup together. So search your heart. Look at the next verse. But behold, Jesus said, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now look, that, this is all part of God's plan, but woe to that. Look at verse 22. This, this doesn't throw God off. The Son of Man goes, it's been determined. Fine. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Come on, it's one thing to know you're about to sell this guy out and, and lead to his death. You're about to have him killed. But then to eat in that intimate setting together, to spend the last meal with this one, ugh. And so they began to, uh, <clears throat> verse 23 is always interesting to me. When I was a kid, I, this, this always bothered me. I would have thought verse 23 would be like, and they all slowly turned and looked at Judas, who's got like the handlebar mustache and the black cape, <laughs> like the old villains, you know. They didn't. Isn't that striking? Instead, they all look like, which one of them it could be? The other gospels say they look around like, is, is it me? Am, do I have the potential to betray Jesus? I, maybe, maybe it is me, right? I don't know. There was one, of course, who knew. It was Judas. Look, here's my point. <sighs> Judas walked with Jesus. Judas did. Jesus, Judas was around all the Jesus stuff. Uh, it's not like when there was a healing the rest of the disciples would heal lepers, right? They'd all heal lepers. And we always noticed when Judas would heal a leper, his leper didn't get healed. <laughs> no, Judas's leper got healed. Or there would be a casting out of demons. Yeah, Judas's demons would come out just like everybody else. Had the power just like everybody else. Was at the table, but was ready to go and betray Jesus. This is what Paul meant when he said about drink, uh, eating and drinking in an unworthy manner. Listen, if that's you, it... If you are around the things of God or you are uh, um, uh, calling yourself a Christian, but in your heart you have no intent to follow him. In fact, you've already begun planning sin that you're going to do this week. Jesus looked at Judas and says, go and do what you do quickly. Just go, just go do it. 
And that would be my word to someone like that. Don't, don't, don't sit at the table and take the bread and drink the cup like everything's fine when you fully intend to continue in a life that has no desire to follow Jesus. Just go do that. Go do that. The better, go do that. Maybe you'll be brought to repentance. Just Now here's why that must be balanced. If you hear me say, Paul says in an unworthy manner, which means drinking the cup and eating the bread knowing you're about to go, go do the sin. no, no, no. It doesn't say if you are unworthy. Listen, if the standard to take the bread and the cup is worthiness, that would mean exactly zero of us would take the bread and the cup. You know what I'm saying? It's like if the bread and cup, you know, were passed around and you're like, well, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy, I'm not worthy. And there'd be like somebody that's like, I'm going to take three. I had a great week. Righteous. Like you, you struggle with pride. Okay, also not worthy. Everybody see the point? <clears throat> You don't take the bread and the cup because you're worthy. If you're struggling with sin and you're fighting sin, you are right now in a war against sin. And a lot of days you're losing. Take the bread and the cup. It's for sinners. So take it. Let it give you courage. And maybe some of those losses will become some victories in your life. It's for sinners. But if you're here and you intend to sin right after this, if you have already premeditated that you have no desire to live for God, do, don't take it. Do you see the difference? Everybody see the difference? It's for sinners. <laughs> but for Judas, he knew it was on his heart. He knew what he was about to do. Okay. And finally, await your future. I ask the musicians to come and or walk you come and just uh, give us a little uh, help and uh, time of reflection. This last one, await your future. And this just struck me. What do you think he meant by these verses like, you know, I tell you, I won't eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Or I tell you that from now on, I won't drink it until the kingdom of God comes. And in 1 Corinthians, it says, um, you know, uh, I'm gonna, uh, 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 we're, gonna, we're gonna eat the bread and drink the cup and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he comes. Um, what does that mean? So if you'll take this and go ahead and pull it out and, and get ready here. I, I, um, I get asked a question a lot by children. Children have a way of cutting through all the nonsense and asking the most obvious questions, don't they? And I get asked this question all the time. And here's the question that kids will ask all the time. They eventually get old enough where they hear grown-ups call this thing the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. Now look at this. Eventually a kid will look at this. They'll see the amount of bread you get. They'll see the amount of cup. And they'll ask me, Hey, Pastor, can I ask you a question? Yeah. How on earth is that a supper? That can't fill me up. Why on earth would this be a supper? Look at just a little tiny piece of bread, a little tiny sip of the juice. Why do Christians call this the Lord's Supper? It's a great question. I think it has a great answer. And I tell kids, and I would tell you this, because... Every time Christians eat this bread and drink this cup, first of all, it, you're right, it's not a physical. This isn't enough to physically nourish you. It's a symbol. And so we are remembering a fact that happened in history. And that fact is the Lamb of God, Jesus, died for us on an old rugged Roman cross, Good Friday, sometime around 30 AD, and three days later he rose from the dead. So it's a symbol. But here's the real reason. When we, when we take it, we eat it and we drink it. It's little teeny tiny because it's also meant to remind us that this is not the real supper. This, if you will, 
is the order. But y'all, there is coming the real supper. This is a foretaste of Revelation 19.9 where he said, Behold, there's coming the marriage supper of the Lamb. The one that Jesus knew was coming. The reason he went to the cross and rose again on the third day and ascended on high and is preparing everything. And the father of the groom pays for that wedding. Oh, he paid for it in the cross of Christ. And the father of the bride pays for that feast. He's your father. And there is coming a day at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the real supper we're looking for. So this is an hors d'oeuvre. This is to give us a little foretaste of glory divine. That which is coming. So every time we do it, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Passover pointed forward to the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper points forward to the marriage supper that's coming. Until then, hang on. Let it give you strength. Let Christ fill you as you partake. I'm going to say a prayer, and while I'm praying, it would not be unreverent in my opinion at all. It would not be irreverent to begin. Sometimes these can be a little tricky. So that the way it works is, if you've done this before, you know this, that top piece of cellophane, go ahead and, if you haven't already, peel that back so that you can get the bread and hold it in your, hold it in your hand while I pray. And if while I pray, I hear the tearing of the wrapper, that's just fine. That's, that's just fine. You're getting ready. Let's get our hearts ready. God, we come to you thanking you for the good gifts you have given us. We thank you for baptism. Today, we thank you especially for the Lord's Supper. God, grant that as we hold this bread in our hands, we think about your body broken for us and given to us, for us and our salvation. And God, let it encourage us in this moment. Let us do it in remembrance of you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, now stay with me here. You got it? You're holding it? Um, In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes, I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. He says, on the night Jesus was betrayed, and somehow Paul got the word because it is identical to what we have in the Gospels. He says, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, given thanks, he broke it, and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And we're going to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Church, let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. At this time, would you uh, do the same thing with the cup? Just peel back that. Mine's purple. Yours may be purple as well. Just peel back that second foil layer there to reveal the juice. I... uh, I don't know. You know, something dawned on me this week I'd never thought about before. But like the four cups, um, the first one's mentioned in Luke and the third one, the cup of redemption. And that fourth one, either they sang a hymn and that's when they took it or Jesus meant, no, the fourth one we're going to wait and that's waiting for us in Revelation 19 and there's some symbolism there. Fine. Either way, I think I can account for three of the four cups. But And I never thought about it till this week. But where'd that second cup go? Plagues judgment of God, the wrath of God. And it, it struck me like that one's just not there. But then I read further on in the Gospels and it hit me. In the Garden of Gethsemane, of all the things Jesus could have said, he could have said, if there's any other way but to go to the cross, I you know, if there's any other way, 
he used a very specific phrase. He said, do you remember? Father, if it be your will, if there's any other way, what does he say? Let this cup pass from me. And I got to thinking, I wonder, maybe, maybe there it is. So the cup of judgment, the plagues, all that wrath of God, there's no record of it because Jesus was saying, that is now going to be my cup. I'm going to drink that. And that's the one. God, let that cup pass from me. If there's any other way, let it pass. Nevertheless, not, thy, not, not, not my will, but thy will be done. And that means because that second cup was taken by Jesus, all that's left is the cup of blessing, the cup of redemption, and the cup of praise for his people. All we get is the blessing. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. He took it all. He took the wrath. He took the judgment. All that's left for you is this cup of redemption, this cup of blessing. So do it in remembrance of Jesus. Paul says it this way. In the same manner, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so until he comes, let's do this in remembrance of Jesus. carry forth this great tradition of singing a hymn like the early disciples sang a hymn before they went out. And so I've asked Walker to lead us in a verse of a hymn. I hope that you are prepared for a very blessed Holy Week. For those of you who get a little time off of school for spring break or whatever, uh, prepare our hearts. Good Friday service will be in the sanctuary at 6 p.m. I'd love to see you at Good Friday service where we just short service, meditate on what Christ did for us on the cross, and then think I preached long today. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I can't wait. Resurrection Sunday. Oh, do we not need that? Okay. Stand to your feet. Our benediction. This will be our benediction. This will close us out. Walker, you lead us in a verse of a hymn. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the Bye.